Well, good evening, everyone. It's, uh, it's amazing to see you all. It really, really is. And what's lovely is that certainly downstairs, people are sitting pretty much where they used to sit when we were last here back in March, which is a, a wonderful sight. Um, some folk are a bit elevated compared to usual places, but we can't help that. Uh, anyway, uh, it's good to be here. First time since March the 15th. And uh, very, very warm welcome to all of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you have grown up a lot since we were last here. Um, others of you haven't seen in the flesh for, for many, many weeks. And uh, this is a, a rare, special, happy occasion. And we're gathered together to be God's people again. May this continue week by week without interruption. May God... Uh, uh, allow that to happen, we do pray. Let me just uh, begin with uh, a few words from the book of Numbers and uh, some words spoken by Balaam. And uh, Balaam had been sent by Balak, the king, to, to curse God's people. He was hired to curse God's people. He opened his mouth and he found he could only bless God's people. And this is what he said. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not seen misfortune in Jacob. He has not seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. And the shout of a king is among them. Well, here we are together. And it uh, feels like more than this morning. Uh, quite a bit more at this stage of the service, which is really encouraging. So let's, uh, let's come together. In prayer, let us pray. We praise you, God of wisdom and power, God of goodness and mercy. We praise you that your tender mercies are over all the earth and your special saving love and interest and care is with all your people in Christ no matter what seasons and pandemics this world may pass through, this can never change, that you have that special saving covenant and concern for the people you have loved and chosen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are our God. You are our shield and defender the lifter up of our heads. You are the one who delivers us from all fear. O oh Lord, we know that we have been in these months visited by this virus that you have sent. And as we thought this morning, it has pleased you in your purposes to bring it into this world. But may it please you in your purposes, O Lord, to remove it from us. Whilst praying at the same time that this virus would be a means in your hands, O Lord our God, to, well, Lord, to chasten us, to discipline us, to refine us, to know that we wholly depend on you for everything and that we as weak human beings do not have alone uh, the power the, uh, the ability to order the world as we would like. And therefore, Lord our God, we entrust ourselves and our times of fellowship into your mighty hands. We pray for your protection and we thank you for your keeping. And we do give you thanks again, O Lord our God, that we have been preserved from the most uh, serious and dangerous, damaging ravages of this coronavirus. 
Lord our God, we pray that we would all be given wisdom to know how to live and how to think at a time like this. We pray, O Lord our God, that we would be of one mind. We know, O Lord, that we come with different temperaments and uh, different experiences and different strengths and different weaknesses, uh, different things that we might be nervous about or even afraid of. But Lord God, we pray that it would be your word and your spirit that would truly make us one, one in mind, one in heart, one in every way. We do pray, Lord God, that tonight and every time we gather, we would hear the unchanging voice that is your voice in the word of God, rather than paying too much attention to the shifting, changing voices of what people around us may say. O Lord, we pray that you would use these weeks and these months to bring new, glorious blessings on your people here in Grove Chapel and everywhere where they meet. O Lord, we pray especially for the children and the young people. We know that these months have been very hard for children who have been absent from school for so long. It has been a trial for them. And we pray, Lord God, that certainly in September there might be for all of them a full and safe return to schools and that, Lord, you would keep all danger and disruption from them. But more than that, Lord, we pray that you would work mightily in all their hearts, inclining their hearts to know you and love you and fear you and seek you and draw near to you. O Lord our God, we pray that tonight you would speak to us very powerfully through your word, for you are a God who is present. You are a God who is with us, and we pray that we might know that you are with us tonight as your word is sounded. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. As this morning... Uh, and so it will be for a few weeks. We are unable uh, to sing. We will not be singing God's praises here for a time. But what we will be doing is speaking God's praises. So uh, we're going to have our Bibles. Hopefully you've brought a Bible with you. And uh, we're going to turn again to one of the Psalms tonight. And it's Psalm 102. 102. And it's quite a long psalm, but we're going to read it together, as we did this morning, uh, responsively, so that I will begin with the first verse, and then if you reply with alternate, even-numbered verses. And uh, I know for those who are watching on YouTube, there may not be quite the same effect as uh, there would be if you were here, hearing the voices of the congregation. But if you're watching from home, well, join in the responses. Uh, join in the responses of Psalm 102 as it's read. So if we could all stand together, please. Psalm 102, I will begin with verse 1. Please respond with verse 2, and so on throughout the whole of this psalm. I'll read the uh, introduction as well because it's important. Psalm 102, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. For my days pass away like smoke. And my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down by the cross, and I have to Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. For, 
For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. That he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You are the same, and your years have no end. And then together, verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Have a seat. Please turn with me to that psalm again. And to verse 13, which I will read. Verse 13 reads, You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. I sense this week that the Lord directed me quite clearly to this text for this evening. It's been one of those occasions where for some weeks I've been thinking about today, July the 5th, and tonight uh, for quite some weeks, and I had a very, very clear idea in my own mind as to what I might be saying to you this evening. I was going to focus on verses 25 to 28. The structure in my mind was absolutely clear. But then on Thursday, when I sat down and began to think about what to say to you tonight, I found a distinct absence of any kind of creative energy or impulse or direction or freedom. I couldn't get anywhere. It was like there were roadblocks put up by the Holy Spirit, as it were, saying, don't go there, go somewhere else. And I was led instead to verse 13. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. I have just two points tonight. I want to come to the first of them very quickly indeed. Firstly, may God arise because his people are in a 
piteous condition. I've chosen that word piteous. I could have chosen pitiable or even pitiful, but piteous seemed to be the strongest word. A people in great need of pity, of God's pity. Now, what do we notice about this psalm? Start at the very beginning, and it's introduced in a rather unusual way. Do you see that it's introduced in the title, which is part of the text of the the psalm? It is a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaints before the Lord. The ancient Israelites regarded this as a psalm for a time of mourning, a time of sadness. It was a psalm for a time of fasting, not for a time of feasting, unlike some of the ones we thought about this morning. They would use this psalm during a time of drought, when they would pray for rain. They would then turn to this psalm. Now, we cannot say exactly what are the circumstances which led to this psalm being written. But what we can surely see is that the first 11 verses of this psalm are characterized by a general theme of distress. He speaks in verse 2, notice, about the day of my distress. And he goes on to describe the sorrow of his existence. Notice his descriptions in these opening 11 verses. Physical pain and discomfort. A loss of appetite. You know when somebody is in a state of depression, of depressed spirits, of distress, they lose their appetites. He talks about feeling lonely and desolate. He compares himself to a solitary bird in a remote wilderness. He talks about the taunts and the ridicule of his enemies. He talks about day after weary day of bitter tears. He talks about God treating him, as it were, with such such violence almost, as if he's being thrown up and then thrown down. As you see there in verse 10, you have taken me up and you have thrown me down. This man is in deep distress. And like all the psalmists, this psalmist doesn't hide that fact or swallow his pain. He gives full expression to it. And so should we. How has it been for you since the middle of March? Be honest. Have these been the best days of your life? If they have, well, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if that were the case? Maybe they haven't been. Probably they haven't been. Some of us here have been tried and tested to the limits of our strength and endurance. For many here, I know, these months have been lonely and empty and bitter. And we felt from day to day as if we were taken up and thrown down We've been exposed to the weaknesses and the difficulties and the limitations that we perhaps didn't realize we had in ourselves as these months have gone by. But the psalmist here in this psalm, whoever he is, he's not speaking about his own merely individual struggles. He's speaking instead as a representative of God's people. And he says, you notice in verse 12, you will arise and have pity on Zion. He doesn't say, you will arise and have pity on me, poor me, wretched, pitiable, distressed me. No, he says, you will arise and have pity on Zion. Now, what does this word Zion mean? Sometimes we hear 
on the news about Zionists building settlements on the West Bank to the east of Jerusalem and all this sort of thing. It can be a a confusing term. What does Zion mean? What is Zion? Do you know what Zion is? Well, Zion was the mountain that David captured from the Jebusites where the city of Jerusalem was and that's where David built the temple or rather where Solomon built the temple after David had died. And Zion in the Bible almost always stands for the people of God, the gathered, assembled people of God. What is Zion? We are Zion. What is Zion? Every gathering of the Lord's people, wherever they are across the whole earth, they are Zion. God's people, Christians, believers, praying people, worshipping people, People waiting on the Lord, people depending on God, people looking to him. They are Zion. And so where it says here, you will arise, Lord, and have pity on Zion, we understand that to mean God will arise and have pity on his own people. And let me say this to all of you tonight. I wish I could be a bit nearer to you all, but I can't. I'm a good way away from you, but I'm nearer to you upstairs. I'm equidistant, aren't I, as far as possible. need a few more people here next time, if we possibly can, make it feel even, even, even fuller. I say even fuller, you know what I mean. We are in a piteous condition. We are in times of distress. And God's people need to admit this freely and not pretend otherwise. What can we say about our condition? Well, we are few in number, first of all. I don't just mean tonight. Here's this building, 201 years old, very nearly, July the 20th, 201 years old. And it was built, as I can see, better than anybody else. It was built to seat a fair few people. How many could sit here if they were packed in like sardines? Several hundred. Well, because it was built at a time when several hundred people would have come here. Why would they have come here? They would have come here to worship God and hear his word. But we are few And we were roughly this number, weren't we, on Sunday evenings, even before lockdown took hold. We are few. And because we are few, maybe, we are overlooked. God's people are overlooked by those who are outside. I've got a question. What kind of estimation does our government place on churches in its various plans. Churches get a look in, don't they? Oh yes, they do. Let's be grateful for that. Let's not say it's all bad and and, and dangerous and difficult. Churches get a look in, but they're kind of lumped together with places of worship. And in terms of importance, we come quite a long way down the list. Maybe you heard in The House of Commons a few weeks ago announcements about this very weekend and it was announced on 4th of July Saturday pubs and restaurants and uh, cafes will open. There was a cry of hallelujah from one of the benches in the House of Commons. Pubs and restaurants are opening. Hallelujah for that. And then churches were mentioned a little later on and there was no cry of hallelujah for that. I read somewhere over the last few days that Churches are just an entry on an alphabetical list of venues somewhere between cemeteries and circuses. We're just a box to be ticked by a civil servant in Whitehall. Apologies, civil servant in Whitehall. Not you. (laughs) At some point in time. We're we're an also-ran, kind of back of a fag packet job, really. Churches, compared to many other places where people gather. Wasn't always this way, was it? And because of this, we are weak in influence. 
We give thanks for the Christian Institute. We give thanks for Christian concern. We give thanks that these bodies make representation and in the past have been used to bring victories like the Ashes Baker victory some time ago. But haven't we seen in recent weeks that these Christian bodies are like increasingly weak swimmers struggling against an ever stronger tide? Abortion legislation, divorce legislation, transgender legislation, Sunday trading legislation, all these things, it seems, being lost as Christians swim against the tide. We are weak in influence. I would say this, we have become the tail rather than the head. I'm thinking of that passage in Deuteronomy 28 where the Lord says to his people that if you keep my commands and observe my laws faithfully, then I will make you to be the head and not the tail. But if you do not, then you will become as the tail rather than the head. You will be led rather than lead. You will be led the way everybody else goes rather than leading other people the way that the Lord wants you to go. And that's what's happened. I'm only describing what's going on. Prominent so-called Christian leaders today do not lead. They do not lead and shape public opinion by preaching the word of God. Instead, they tamely follow the spirit of the age. They jump on every fashionable bandwagon and they kowtow to the latest ideas and the latest trends. And let me say one more thing at this point. One great danger that I feel we need to identify is the danger of God's people weakly giving in to an attitude of cowering fear. We must be on our guard. This COVID-19 crisis necessarily demands that we all act with due and proportionate vigilance. And so we must and so we are doing and so we will continue to. But we must beware in case this heightened need for vigilance becomes a kind of Trojan horse for a spirit of slavery to come upon God's people. May the church of God never be so muzzled so that the essential freedoms that God gives us to gather to worship, to speak, and even to think are freedoms that are bartered away. May we, may the church, may churches and Christians, knowing the times we are in, recognizing the need that we have to face, discerning what we should do and what we might not do, but may we continue to proclaim the whole counsel of God with boldness and vigor and not give way to a spirit of slavery. God's people are in a piteous state. Oh Lord God, may it please the Lord God to favor us at a time like this. And so I come to my second point. God will arise. Our God will arise. It says so here in verse 13. You will arise and have pity on Zion. And notice how in verse 12 there is a great change of tone. The 11 verses of pity and distress are over now. The tone lifts. What's changed? Well, this is what's changed. Until verse 11, the psalmist has been looking around and looking down and looking inside. 
but he's not been looking up. He's been taking his own pulse and he's found that it's a very slow, lethargic pulse. He's been looking at the faces all around him and he's seen that they are very sad and distressed and depressed faces. But the one thing he's not yet done is to look up. And that's what he begins to do in verse 12. And the first words of verse 12 signal a tremendous shift. But you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, often this word but in the Bible signals the changing of the tide. God himself changing the momentum in which things are going. You think of Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were slaves to the prince of the power of the air who works in the children of disobedience. We were all children of wrath. We were all under condemnation. Ephesians 2, first three verses. All judgment, all sin, all wrath, all distress. But God! But God! That's the point. Everything around us may look dismal. If you and I have looked inside our own souls over the last three or four months, as I have many a time, I found nothing to cheer me up inside me. Nothing. It just gets me lower and lower every time. Have you felt the same? I'm sure you have. You've looked at your work. You've looked at schools. You've looked at the news. You maybe began watching the daily Downing Street conferences and then you turned them off. You thought there's nothing there to cheer me up. Why am I watching these anymore? They don't, they don't bring me any joy. They only bring more gloom to me. Everything looks dismal until we get to this, but God. And now the psalmist remembers that God, the Lord, is enthroned forever. Until now, he's been laboring and pining and merely existing under a thick blanket of heavy gray cloud. He's been like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, in the book of Lamentations. I think it was New Year's Day or New Year's Sunday. Two or three years ago, I preached from Lamentations chapter 3. Some of you may remember this, and we were saying that there comes a point in Lamentations chapter 3 where he's been, he's been under that cloud, he's been under that gloom for so long, and then he breaks through the cloud into a blue sky, and he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I remember these things. I have hope. I see God. I see the light. I see truth. I see joy. I see something eternal and wonderful. Because I realize that God is with me. And now that's what this psalmist does. The clouds part. And with the eye of faith, he sees God seated on his throne, reigning in heaven over the whole earth. It's the sight that he needs. It's the sight that you need. It's the sight that we all need. And the psalmist reminds us here that God being the God that he is, the almighty God that he is, Lord over heaven and earth, he will arise. He cannot fail to arise. Will a God like this just wring his hands and say, things look a bit grim down there, but I, I can't or I shan't or I won't do anything about it I can't do anything, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. No, our God must arise. Our God must stand up. Our God must take action. It's the kind of God he is. Do you remember last week, if you were listening last week, we looked at Psalm 131 briefly, didn't we? That beautiful psalm about a, a mother calming a fretful child. And that's a picture that we find elsewhere in the Bible. We think of Isaiah 49. God is compared to a nursing mother with a child. And in that situation, you see, it's a bit like this psalm. God's people, you and me, we're beginning to feel distressed. We're feeling desolate. We're feeling puzzled. 
We're saying, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Nothing ever happens. Things just stay the same or get worse. But then the Lord replies in Isaiah 49, verses 14, 15, 16. He says this. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. And then he says, even these may forget. Yes, it's possible, isn't it? Sometimes a nursing mother might forget her child. Sometimes a nursing mother might sadly even neglect her child. But the Lord says, yet I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What am I saying? God cares. God will act. Our God knows. Our God is not silent. Our God is not careless. Our God is not passive. Let me put it to you like this. Let me ask you one or two questions. Do you care about this church? Do we care about this church, Grove Chapel? I, I hope we do. Do we want to see more people coming in through the labours that Pete and others are involved in? Coming in, picking up those Gospels and literature and then seeing on Sundays now we're open and talking to us and coming in and hearing the word of life and being saved and then becoming Yes, these things happen, you know. They do happen. Becoming fruitful, faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do, do we want to see these things happening? Yes, we do, don't we? Do we want God's people in their workplaces, in their schools, in their offices, in their communities to become more influential, to become more the head rather than the tail, to be leading the way rather than following others. Yes, of course we do. Do we want what it says here in verse 18 of Psalm 102? That a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Wouldn't we love to know that in 30, 40 years' time that the unborn children of young people in this room and the unborn grandchildren of people in this room will be here or in other churches praising God, continuing in faith, holding to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course we do. Yes, we care about these things. And back in those days, God's people cared about those things. Look with me at verse, uh, verse 14. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. God's people care about the church. God's people care about the work of the gospel. God's people want these things to happen. But this is the main point I want to make now. What is your concern about these things? And what is my concern about these things? When compared to God's concern about these things. Who cares more? And who will do more? Philip Eveson, retired now, former minister, lecturer, living up in Wrexham, in his wonderful commentary on the Psalms, he says here something that made me sit up. He says that the psalmist knows that God is more interested in the future of Zion than his people are. In his mind is the honor of God. I'll read those words again. The psalmist knows that God is more interested in the future of Zion than his people are. 
In his mind is the honour of God. And I read those words, I think it was Thursday night, and at that point I just knew I was compelled, I had to leave the end of the psalm and my originally preconceived plan and my structure and go back to verse 13. I had to go to verse 13 because the point is this, God is more interested in the future of his own work, his own people, his own gospel, his own salvation and everything to do with it than any of us could ever be. And we can localize this statement. We can apply it as close as we possibly can. God is more interested in the future of Grove Chapel than all the combined collective interests that we and those at home watching might have. God has a greater burden of care and concern for the whole church in this nation and in this whole world than any of us would ever have. His plan and his purpose far outstrips our wildest, bravest dreams. I remember when I first came here, when I first met most of you, Saturday afternoon, March 2014, And somebody here tonight, who I won't single out so as not to embarrass this this dear brother or sister, said to me, what is your vision for this church? (gasps) The question that every prospective pastor in some ways dreads, because you think to yourself, well, how do I answer that honestly? I don't really know this church very well. I, I pretend I do, you know. Oh, I know all about Campbell. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what I want. How can I answer in such a way that these people are going to you know, agree with my answer and, and own my vision? And I've thought a lot about that ever since, and I feel only now might I begin to be able to gradually formulate some kind of vision for this church. But, you know, what is my vision for this church? And what is your vision for this church, ultimately? I can tell you what I would say now if it interests you. I can tell you what my vision would be if it interests you. I'd love to see this building packed to the rafters with people of all kinds from this whole community and especially local people of all ages and all backgrounds, of all complexions, of every kind, coming in gladly to hear the word of God, longing to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'd love to see a people here characterized by love, humility, service across all generations and backgrounds, I'd love to see people raised up, God calling people, boys and girls, men and women, to serve him. For the boys to be future elders, deacons, pastors, missionaries. For the girls, for the women, to be sent wherever they may be called by the Lord to be be Sunday school teachers, to be family workers, to be those who teach the word of God to others in all sorts of ways. That's a vision. And as I've shared already, that the children and the grandchildren of those who are here will one day in years ahead in this or another place be serving the Lord. Maybe you share that vision. Maybe you will add to that vision. Maybe you'll say, Paul, you've missed out these things, how dare you? Isn't this your vision as well? Well, my answer is, what is my vision? What is your vision? What are all these things compared to the Lord's own purpose and determination? What does he want? What will he do? What does he say? We've only got to read on into verses 15 and 16 to find out something to that answer. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. 
There are many nations around SE58RF, aren't there? And then there are nations beyond the shores of this land. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. God seeks his own glory. And as the psalmist realizes that, his mood has changed in the latter part of the psalm. His will and his longing becomes conjoined with God's own desire for his own honor and glory. A spirit of praying and seeking God's glory overtakes him and fills him. And that's where our hearts must be. What are you and I going to do, friends, in response to all this? In a single word, we can pray, can't we? We can all pray. Do you pray? What do you pray for? Do you pray with any confidence that God's going to answer your prayer? I've got a question for you. Nearly finished now. Whose prayers does God answer? Whose prayers does God answer? The prayers of clever people? The prayers of good people? The prayers of sorted people? Amazing people? Older people? Tells us here in verse 17 the kind of people whose prayers God answers. Can you see verse 17? Whose prayers does God answer? Can you see it? The prayer of the destitute. Destitute. That sounds a bit like piteous to me. Does it to you? To be destitute is to be having empty hands, empty pockets, to say, I've got nothing to bring. I'm in great need. I'm poor. I'm needy. I'm helpless. I'm starting at the bottom. I'm like that tax collector who goes into the temple And at first I might be put off by the Pharisee who's standing there and praying from a position of strength and saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like him. Groveling on the floor over there. But the Pharisee's prayers are not heard. The prayer that's heard is the prayer of the destitute, the poor. Have you, like me, woken up morning after morning since the end of March with that sense in your soul of, I didn't realize till now just what a miserable, empty, wretched sinner I was. I'm I'm, I'm not making it up, friends. I mean what I'm saying. I've been tried and tested, and I'm a failure. And I thought I could manage. And I thought I had the resources in me to cope. And I thought I was a pretty good Christian man and Christian husband and Christian father and Christian pastor. And I'm struggling to be any kind of Christian. I'm destitute. May it have been God's purpose over these months in the grace of his cruel kindness to reveal to your heart and mine that we are destitute, that we're bankrupt, that we're miserable, that we're poor and blind and naked. We are, you know. We all are. Nothing in my hand I bring. You know how it goes on, don't you? Simply, to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for grace.
for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, wash me, Saviour, or I die. I die, I pine away in my distress. We are piteous. Are you sitting there saying, dear, oh dear, Paul's had a rough time, hasn't he? Glad I haven't felt like that. (laughs) What's wrong with him? You know, it's not been that bad, has it? You know, look at him. Does he want us to feel, no, 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 sorry for him? No, 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 nothing like that. I'm just saying, hasn't the Lord brought a time upon his people where we feel piteous? And it's his grace that we do. That we cry out to him for help. Oh, this is great. I'm preaching to people at last. You can hear me and I can see you. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. It makes all the difference. Sorry, camera, but I've got real people here, okay? And it's great. And I'm preaching to them. And I'm preaching to you as well. I'm preaching to you as well. The Lord's people are here. And the Lord is gracious. And the Lord is loving. And may the Lord build up his people. May he appear here in glory, in this very place, in Grove Chapel, in the streets, in the houses, in the conversations, in the cafe, on the continuing Zoom that we carry on with for a bit longer. We need to. The Lord has used our times of Zoom, hasn't he? He has. He's not left us alone. But may he have plans and purposes for us that go beyond anything that we can ever ask or imagine. May God be with his people. Let's pray together. Our Father, our gracious God, you save a humble people. You look to those who are of a lowly and contrite and humble spirit. Such a person you will look to. O Lord our God, help us see that we have nothing of our own we can bring to you. But O Lord God, as these weeks and months go on and we do not know what they will bring, we are aware, O Lord, that we are not through this episode yet. We are aware that many, many other struggles may come upon all of us. But may we, O Lord, all know together that you are with us. God, whose desire is to bless and to save, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. O Lord, come. O Lord, be with us all. O Lord, encourage us, we pray. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.